0: One of the other things that I think is a big mistake in contemporary rhinoplasty, and it's partly been forced upon us because of COVID, is to try to diagnose a nose from, from a Zoom uh, interview or from photographs.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this edition of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We're continuing our June series on the American legends, um, proudly brought to us by Allagan. Thank you so much for their support for this podcast. And today I am really excited to be interviewing a man who has had a huge influence around the world in rhinoplasty and in my life as well. I vividly remember meeting him for the first time and sitting down and asking him questions and the way he taught both on stage and then one-on-one was just fantastic. So I think this next uh, few minutes or what might be longer than that as we chat, it's gonna be great to have Dr. Rick Davis all the way from Florida, USA on the show. Dr. Davis, welcome very much to being on the Rhinoplasty podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Cameron. And uh, I I must say that uh, I regard you as one of the titans of rhinoplasty. You're In the earlier years of your career but you're um, you're accelerating the growth uh, for you personally but also for all the rest of us with the uh, the way you've taken command of the internet and telemedicine learning for this specialty so I congratulate you on amazing amount of uh, hard work I know it's taken a lot of your personal time to do what you've done but the uh, World Rhinoplasty Day and gatherings such as this and many others like it uh, have been wonderful. So uh, hats off. I'm proud of you and uh, I'm sure you will continue this trend. Uh, thank you. It's it's actually
1: so interesting for me how many people around the world are listening to this podcast. Um, um, we, we, we have it on four podcast platforms, but it also goes out on YouTube. And we've already cracked over 5,000 views on YouTube. So people are hungry to learn and the nice way about doing this is we can actually have a proper one-on-one and chat through things. So, yeah. So maybe for the listeners who who, there might be some who are not familiar with you, tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are now.
0: Well, where I am now is, um, laboring under COVID trying to (laughs) to make the best of a difficult situation. But, uh, my career, um, Uh, started as many facial plastic surgeons, I was an ENT resident. I knew very early on, even before I matched in otolaryngology, that I wanted to do facial aesthetic work. And I spoke to um, plastic surgeons uh, as a medical student and to otolaryngologists and tried to weigh the balance and the the pros and cons of of the two different paths. At the time I went through, plastic surgery was a five-year general surgery residency, where you did a lot of non-plastic things, you know, taking out gallbladders and colons and the like, followed by a two-year residency in uh, strictly plastic, but it was spread very diffuse. It included burns and and hand surgery and things that I had no interest in. Otolaryngology was a one-year surgical internship, four years of concentrated effort in the head and neck, which is where I wanted to... to uh, devote my time, and then I ultimately um, undertook a fellowship in um, Oregon with Ted Cook back in the early 90s, and uh, I think that served me well for doing what I do now, which is purely nasal surgery. I started out with um, a number of uh, uh, ambitious goals. I wanted to do uh, skull base reconstructions and craniofacial and pediatric and Maxillofacial trauma and uh, burn injuries and all sorts of things. And I did all those, and uh, many of which I enjoyed, but they were brutally hard work. Um, and as I got older, I just realized that the, uh, the that was a young man or woman's game, and uh, I wanted less and less of that. And as I tapered and coned my area of interest, uh, I found rhinoplasty to be every bit as demanding but far less um, labor intensive. Um, rhinoplasty is a, is a brain tease every time up. And anybody who thinks there's an easy nose will be humbled by an easy nose eventually. And some noses that look incredibly hard can be a surprisingly... Um, uh, you know, compliant. There's not a lot of pushback. They seem to uh, flow nicely and you get your result. But rhinoplasty always requires a lot of forethought, a lot of planning, a lot of three dimensional, even four dimensional thinking. And um, I find it endlessly challenging, but endlessly fascinating. No one has mastered rhinoplasty, no one has come close. But as a specialty, we're inching forward, and uh, I've seen enormous progress in the in the predictability and control of outcomes in the uh, 30 or so years since I saw my first nose. In fact, my very first operation was a medial maxillectomy in 1988 as a junior resident, and uh, we did a Weber-Ferguson incision, split the lip, went around, and filleted everything open, took a plum-size inverting papilloma out of the airway, sutured it all back up, and the next day my patient looked like we'd never done a thing, only he was tumor-free and could breathe well. And I caught the bug. And that was uh, my second year in in, uh, um, the year after my internship. And from that point on, I was all facial plastics. I was all in. That's amazing. So uh, here I am. But uh, 1988. Um, what is that? 30, 33 years later, I'm, I'm just doing noses exclusively. And you're just a handful of guys who
1: only so. do noses, which is amazing because it's quite interesting to see how many people are out there doing rhinoplasty and something else. Whereas th- this is the thing that's so interesting about, um, for example, Spencer and yourself and, um, and Dean, how you guys are so focused on only doing noses.
0: Well, you know it's both a blessing and a curse to only do noses um, It really helps accelerate your understanding of rhinoplasty if you can immerse yourself in it. It's like learning a new language if you uh if you want to learn French, move to Paris and immerse yourself and it will happen faster if you stay at home and you do you know instructional tapes uh, it's going to take a long time so there are there is the occasional exceptionally gifted surgeon that can be a, a master of several different facets of aesthetic surgery as well as rhinoplasty but most who really do it well that are really the thought leaders and the innovators and the people that get the best results they do it full time whether that's a Wolfgang Gubisch or a, you know uh Dean Toriumi or a Enrico Robotti or whatever They're, they're pretty much immersed in it and focused entirely on that. And I think that is a huge advantage if you truly want to, want to develop some degree of mastery. I won't say if you want to master it because that's impossible, but if you want to become, become a seasoned and consistent rhinoplasty surgeon with some measure of mastery, unless you have almost superhuman talent, you really have to devote yourself to that operation. Mm. So, in my opinion. So, before we get you, what I, that's worth
1: one of the things we're gonna chat about is misconceptions in rhinoplasty, but I'm reminded by a conversation you and I had, and we were talking about the ALOR rim grafts, the articulated ALOR rim grafts, and I was trying to explain how hard it is for me to get the suture in, and you said to me, Cameron, are you operating with your left hand? <laughs> Well, unless you're left handed, it could be a handicap. No, no but anyway, so yeah, I, I I wanted to ask you back to the same subject of this articulated rim graft. Okay, so the, the, I, I have two questions. The one is, do you put that underneath the uh, lateral curve or do you lay it on top? And then the angle of that graft, the most the, close to the tip, what what at what kind of an angle do you cut that normally because it's like an odd triangular shape kind of graft with one long piece that goes to the lateral aspect and then you got the shorter medial piece cuz i think of the diamond tip oh, and how well. i want to accentuate that at times but sometimes i find if i lay the graft on top it doesn't give as nice a result as sometimes putting it underneath
0: if every tip was the same if every objective of changing the tip, every end point was the same, then there would only be one way to cut, position, and fixate the graft. But virtually every tip is different. Some patients, oh, I don't want a narrow tip, I want it fuller, or just the opposite. I want as narrow as you can make it without destroying my airway. So the thickness of the skin the final width that the patient is seeking, the starting width, the size of the airway, and how much you can sacrifice in order to narrow and refine a tip will collectively determine how much leeway you have. For instance, if you have a a one and a half millimeter thick skin envelope, which is not uncommon, that's maybe intermediate or slightly thinner than intermediate, you have roughly three millimeters of the tip width due to the soft tissue envelope at this area of the lobule. But if you have a five or six millimeter thick skin envelope, and I have physically measured such, then you have up to 12 millimeters of tip width are determined simply by the soft tissue. So if you put a graft in that's two millimeters on either side, You're adding four millimeters to an existing soft tissue envelope of 12 millimeters. And even if you cut out the tip cartilage and sew it to a strut or to a septal extension graft, you're going to have a tip lobule that's 12 millimeters wide. So in those cases, I would recess the rim graft, not bring it all the way out. I would tend to leave the septal extension graft, which is my mainstay for central tip support. I would tend to leave it almost naked, so that that skin can redrape and coact more tightly. And I would often even debulk the undersurface of the flap by excising the mass. You can do that bluntly; you don't have to do it sharply. And when you do it bluntly, you can carefully peel it away from the subdermal fat without injuring the vascularity. And I've been doing this for many years, and people say, "Oh, it's dangerous." You shouldn't defat the skin, but I'm not defatting. I'm demusculing, muscling the skin flap. And you know, people that used to back in the day, they would cross hatch the dermis from the undersurface in a checkerboard pattern. That's horribly harmful to the dermis. It cuts through all the the vascularity, most of which is in the subdermal fat, not in the dermis, but you're cutting through both. And so what do you get? A lot of fibrosis, a lot of hardening. In a thin skin envelope, it will look horrible. In a thick skin envelope, it'll just create a lot of bleeding and dead space and fibrosis, and you may make it thicker than it was at the beginning. But if you gently, carefully with blunt force, I use a a, a caudal to kind of scrape it a little bit. You can see the Yellow of the fat on the upper side and the red of the muscle on the lower side. And then you just keep going until you reach whatever point you want to terminate. And then you have to bevel your cut so that it tapers gently and not a stair step. And I've actually taken that muscle and used it as a radix graft. I mean, you don't throw it away until you're sure you don't need it. In revision cases, it's a little riskier because there might be some damage to the subdermal fat, but more often than not, a thick skin envelope can be thinned, and in doing so, you make more room for the articulated rim graft. Now, back to your question. Do they go on the underside or the outside? I almost always use them on the outside. The reason for that is if you're correcting a lobular pinch, you have a vertical shadow that creates a circumferential delineation of the tip and a circumferential delineation of both nostrils that looks like a clover leaf and it's un- unsightly and patients can't really verbalize why they don't like their tip, but it's, even if it's a pinched tip, it looks kind of bulbous because it's so harshly delineated by shadow from the alar margins, and, and Dean Toriomi wrote about this in Archives of Facial Plastic Surgery in 2006, and he very eloquently uh, described those, those uh, shadows and transitions between you know, light reflex and shadow. And there should be a very subtle transition between the, the illuminated tip, the illuminated alar lobule, And you should have more or less a bit of a light reflex connecting the two. When you have a pinched lobule, that reflex disappears, a dark shadow develops. Oftentimes it's associated with collapse from an overly exuberant cephalic resection. And it devastates the airway when you have that. So. I learned at least I felt early in my career that if you put batten graphs over the lateral cruise or you put batten graphs under the lateral cruise you often thicken the sidewall at just the worst point because you're often thickening right near the scroll and the scroll is where the internal valve dimensions are tightest that's the bottleneck that's the the uh you know rate limiting uh flow constriction So if you move the support downward toward the rim, you still support this to a large degree, especially when you tension a tip, and that's a whole other topic. But your eye wants to see volume along the lower edge of the nose, wants to see fullness here. Move up three millimeters and it wants to see narrowness. So. I have kind of a bulbous nose. If I, if I had narrowness in the super tip and fullness along the alar margin, assuming that my alar rims are in good position, it looks good. So more often than not, when I was placing those graphs, I was enhancing the contour of the nose, but also enhancing the function because I was helping to stabilize the tip complex. Stabilize the rim against upward retraction, stabilize the tip against inward collapse, and by suture fixating it to a septal extension graft, I was immobilizing it so that it provided a, a measure of stability. Because a natural alar margin, the uh, tela subcutanea cutis in the ala, has no cartilage at all. And the turning point from where the the lateral cruise running along the edge it'll eventually turn and migrate toward the pupil. That turning point can be very lateral, in which case you have a lot of direct rim support from the lateral cruise, or it can be very medial, very near the tip defining point, in which case you have virtually no direct cartilaginous support. And I would just thought, well hell let's put a let's put a little batten right along the rim. That had been done and described um Rod Rorick called it an alar contour graft, and Peter Hilger wrote it up and called it an alar rim graft, and they both showed that it worked well for pinching. But neither got very satisfactory results for retraction, especially in secondary cases. And I believe that's because you have to first release the, the cartilage and unravel that contractured epithelium that was denuded when you did your cephalic resection. And and basically triggered the whole phenomenon of retraction, pull it down, free it up so that it's tensionless, and then you have a fighting chance of supporting it and immobilizing it as long as you anchor it to the rest of the framework. And since the septal extension graft is basically part of the L-strut, it's allowing you to to hold it in the correct position so that scar tissue and contracture doesn't act to pull it back in its former position when you're correcting it uh, secondarily. I have and still do occasionally put it underneath, simply because it doesn't need a lot of volume there and it'll push in a little bit more rather than push out a little more, so it camouflages it better. And I use uh, Dean Toriumi's technique of transposition sparingly, I, I must admit, but there are patients in whom the retraction's so bad, and the uh, the epithelial contracture cannot be undone; it can't be unfurled. So you need usually a composite graft, and then the rim graft simply helps to, to rotate that alar margin downward and hold it there. And in that case, I I definitely put it underneath. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go about this. And again, each nose is different. Sometimes I just do it on one side. Sometimes I do it on both. Sometimes I don't use alarum grafts. They're not necessary. Most of the time, if you put them in, there's not much of a penalty unless you make them too big. Or when you put them in underneath, if you put them right on top of the vestibular skin, you'll see a little step off Uh, just inside the alar rim, that when the patient leans back, they hate seeing that. And so I put them very, very superficially. I dissect the outer skin pocket as closely to the skin as I can get without perforating. And that hides them very nicely. Sure, That was a long answer for a short question. I've got to be careful with what my questions
1: (laughs) are going to be. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> let, let, let's change track now and talk about misconceptions in rhinoplasty.
0: So, what you is, know, what do you think is some of the important? One of the aspects? most common errors I see, not only in in um, you know beginning surgeons, neophytes, if you will, but also in very experienced surgeons, is people forget about circulation. And the huge importance of circulation to a rhinoplasty outcome. Every nose goes into surgery with a certain level of circulatory health. And if we tried to uh, quantitate it, let's say for a primary nose, the circulation is 100%. It's as good as it's ever going to be. There may be a young patient, 16, 17 years old, just completed their adolescent growth spurt. Whether they have thick skin, thick skin, their circulatory health is as strong as it's ever going to get. I believe thin skin has less circulatory capacity simply because it's not as thick and it can't accommodate as many blood vessels and lymphatic channels. Thicker skin, I think, has more redundancy, more reserve. But the way they react to surgery is quite different. One will contract the thin skin, the other won't contract enough. So they're both problems, they just have to be managed differently. But when you operate on a nose, whether you do it endonasal, external, whether you're preserving ligaments or not, you're at least traumatizing some part of the skin envelope. Whether you raise your flaps in a super con, uh, perichondrial plane or a subperichondrial plane, there's damage to the circulation. I've always felt that a subperichondrial flap, even in thick skin, was worthwhile because I'm keeping everything on block and I'm minimizing the penetration and the injury to the skin flap but I still get some injury, and so does anyone else who elevates a skin flap. That vascularity will partially regenerate, but studies have shown it never comes back 100%. So maybe you started with 100%, but after a year and a half, it may be I don't know, pick a number, ninety percent. Maybe that surgeon was very meticulous and didn't use electrocautery and you know was very, very gentle about their dissection. Followed the dissection planes beautifully, minimizing with good soft tissue technique any tissue trauma. It's still not going to be a hundred percent ever. But let's say that same surgeon, as meticulous as they were, made some bad aesthetic judgments, took too much of the hump down, um, you know, maybe didn't resect the cephalic margins equally or took too much of the cephalic margin away. And so the patient was left with a bad cosmetic and or functional outcome, and they need now a second surgery. Well, now the surgeon tasked with fixing that nose has a diminished circulatory capacity. And yet that surgeon will also almost assuredly use some type of graft tissue to augment the skeletal frame, to get the height of the dorsum back, to get the tip stabilized and symmetric. And when you put grafts in there, where do they receive their rescue? Where does the vascular support come from? It comes from the very tissue that your predecessor damaged on the first surgery, the outer skin envelope and the inner skin lining. Maybe the second surgery is also unsuccessful. I have patients all the time, they go back to their primary surgeon who took too much tissue, and on the second surgery he goes and takes more tissue. So all it does is exacerbate the initial problem. Maybe three, four, five surgeries elapse before they end up on my doorstep. I know that I now have a nose that is disabled. It is compromised. It won't handle as much normal surgical intervention or trauma. And yet, typically these noses are foreshortened. They've they've been made too short. They're not projected well enough. Their airway is collapsing, and it looks bad as well. So they need an expansion rhinoplasty, an augmentation rhinoplasty, where you need to elongate the nose, elevate the dorsum, widen the airway, And that's gonna require, again, structural augmentation with something. I prefer autologous tissue, but people forget that the more you stretch, the more you pull, the more you pack stuff in there, the more you compromise a circulatory apparatus that's already impaired. You're just adding more stress to a system that can't handle much stress. How you care for that nose afterward might alleviate some of that stress or it might exacerbate some of that stress. I'm very, very um, militant about using ice. I ask my patients to put crushed ice right here 23 hours a day for the first week after surgery. Cold therapy has been shown to increase tissue tolerance to ischemia. It's been shown to diminish swelling, pain, ecchymosis, and in doing so, it facilitates and enhances baseline nutrient blood flow to bring oxygen, nutrients into the nose, but also to allow outflow, which will evacuate carbon dioxide and metabolites, toxic metabolites, so that the river of flow is maintained, but it doesn't cause a facial a facial, um, a, a facial uh, gridlock and back up blood and fluid into the periorbita, into the cheeks, into the surrounds of the internal airway. So you're doing a lot of good if you can spare the circulation at the get-go, if you can be gentle on the tissue as you dissect, if you can avoid dissecting areas that don't need to be dissected and exposed. But by the same token, in secondary rhinoplasty, you really need to get wide field exposure in a lot of these noses. And I think doing that on block, elevating the, the tissue from the perichondrium up gives you a better chance to preserve and conserve what circulatory health you, your, your patients start off with. And I think people need to be a lot smarter about circulation. You know, Dean Toriumi has, has really made that a focus. So he's using hyperbaric treatments. He's using stem cells via fat. He's using, uh, you know, a lot of different mechanisms to try to augment the circulatory health of noses and to prevent infection, because when you have circulatory gridlock, your immune system doesn't function very well. So it's a double jeopardy. You lose your grafts, you lose your immune surveillance, you, um, you stimulate a lot of swelling, which in turn puts even more pressure on the circulatory apparatus. And when you're dealing with noses that need to be enlarged and that have a large graft burden, you can't afford those things. So I would say it's not really a misconception, it's kind of an oversight that people need to be mindful of circulatory capacity and make their surgical judgments accordingly. You need to examine the skin. Capillary refill and the appearance of the skin. Is there vascular congestion? Is the skin all red and purple? Are there, you know, lots of telangiectasias? Does the refill, is it brisk, or does it take forever? Is there mobility of the skin? Is there a glide plane? Is there um, a lot of fibrosis and fixation and adhesions of the skin envelope? That's all bad stuff. So, you know, one of the other things that I think is a big mistake in contemporary rhinoplasty, and it's partly been forced upon us because of COVID, is to try to diagnose a nose from, from a Zoom uh, interview or from photographs. I find that to be very, very um, precarious and, and uh, risky. It's, you know, if you have a overseas practice and people are coming from far, far away, sure, I'll look at some pictures, I'll say, okay, here's my initial thoughts about your cosmetic stuff, but I can't make, I can't really render any thoughts about how much surgery your nose can tolerate. How um, what your prognosis is, what your uh, surgical needs will be as far as graft tissue, what grafts are available, what your airway looks like. So I can't tell you much about the operation itself, your prognosis, or, or even the cost of surgery. You have to come and let me look and feel and touch and snoop around inside your nose, and then I can get back to you with some informed decisions. And so if um, somebody says that... I see a lot of... Sorry, do,
1: my question is, so there's a lot of this kind of um, consulting virtually, et cetera. In your case, then, so somebody has to actually come down, fly in to come and see you, and then a decision is made about surgery. Correct. Yeah.
0: That's right, and that can be painful if you are coming from a very, very long way. But, you know, when you've had four or five fail, failed surgeries, you can ill afford having a fifth or sixth failed surgery you're running out of do overs. The tissue will eventually become completely intolerant of more surgery. So if you really want to get your nose fixed, you got to stop, you know, um, allowing surgeons who don't have the appropriate expertise to attempt the fix. And any surgeon that books surgery sight unseen, in my opinion, is is rolling the dice with your face. I don't I don't think that is the kind of um, kind of a a surgical assessment that we want to foster in our practices.
1: And closely related to this, I think, is the whole social media thing around um, self-promotion. You know, I think if we knew started 33 years ago, there was no such a thing as the internet to go and put, I love Rod's, one of his sayings was, hey Cameron, you know, everyone's world famous on their own website. I was like, I love it,
0: it's very true. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very famous in some cases to to the extent that they seem to have invented rhinoplasty, you know? It's like, wow. Uh, I see I see two problems. One is I see doctors gaming the system. I think that is sadly becoming increasingly common where they're, you know, I, when, when a young surgeon who's only been in practice six months has 400 and some five-star reviews, I'm like, how did you get 400 and some patients in six months of practice? Number one, doing that many surgeries in that period of time is virtually impossible, so I question whether these are authentic patients. And any doc that has consistently 5.0 stars probably is not providing an accurate assessment of their, you know, those reviews I think may be rigged a little bit. Um, I would hope that doctors would never do this, but I suspect it's being done. Competition is tight, the economy is suffering because of the pandemic, and there are huge economic pressures on all of us, and so there's a temptation there to make themselves look like they're uh, a a better uh, specialist than they might actually be, so I, I fear that, and I would if it were up to me, if I were king of the world, I would outlaw medical advertising immediately. I think it has become a cesspool. It has created all sorts of problems, both for the patient and the doctor, that back before advertising was allowed, those things never happened. Now, you know, it's not to say that the Internet can't be a source of good information, but there's a lot of of um smoke screens that you have to filter through. And for most patients, it's very hard for them to figure out who's legit and who isn't. They suspect that not everybody is, but they don't know how to differentiate. And frankly, I'm not sure there is a way. The other side of the coin is the patient who can mercilessly, uh, without any valid um, uh, truth to their reviews, can just decide to beat on a, on a particular physician because of reasons that are meaningless and trivial. I've had patients savage me for not operating on them, and I didn't think their their objectives were at all realistic. Uh, I've had patients who have come in just after they're having a stroke who are on blood thinners or who are uh, quadriplegic in wheelchairs, insisting that I do rib grafts on them. And I'm like, no, you're just not a suitable candidate for a procedure like this. If I did a rib graft and your diaphragm is paralyzed and you can't take a deep breath, how are you going to cough if you get a wound infection? What happens if you get a pneumothorax? You're going to end up in the hospital on a ventilator and it's going to get ugly. And that's pre-COVID. And that patient stalked me for nine months trying to persuade me to change my mind. And they would walk into my office unannounced and throw a a hissy fit. And, um, you know, I'm like, look, I would love to help you, but medically it would be irresponsible of me. I don't care if I die. Well, I do. And I've also had patients that were just totally unrealistic. You know, my husband will crawl back to me on his hands and knees if you just make my nose look prettier. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. And your nose looks normal. Maybe there's another reason why your husband isn't coming back to you. And it's probably not your nose. And, you know, all that, that's just a recipe for disaster. But I told that patient, look, I don't have the surgical skills that are needed to do what you want to have happen. And I'm sorry, but I cannot help you. And then this person turned around and said just horrible things about me on the internet, over and over and over. So, you know, I, I, I think the there are patients that have a legitimate beef that some of their doctors weren't as well-trained as they they portrayed themselves. And they have a right to be angry when their outcomes are substandard and and sometimes horrendously substandard. And I think as a as a discipline, it would be nice if we could police ourselves a little better. But also the the in most countries, the patients can say pretty much whatever they want, truthful or not. And it's very hard to do much about that. And even if you can get through to Google or get through to Yelp or get through to one of these places and get that review taken down, they just get a, another Gmail account and and savage you even harder the next day. We really have no protections as a as a specialty. And one of the things I would like to see, and and, and, and one of the beautiful outcomes and um, consequences of the World Rhinoplasty Day was that. People from all surgical walks of life came together in one tent to uh, celebrate rhinoplasty and to, to push the envelope forward. If we could get that on a multinational basis from a political standpoint to start working on some of this, okay, patients have a right to give a review, but they don't have a right to slander or lie or cook up fake reviews. And we should have immediate redress when that happens, and there should be penalties if they continue to post such reviews repeatedly. But right now, the best you can do is hire a lawyer at a great deal of expense and just try to chase these every time they come up. And it's like playing whack-a-mole. You end up spending a lot of time and money and really not getting much done. And because of that, I've just told, I just totally shut out the internet. I stopped looking. I stop reading, I stop caring because it's a cesspool. And if that's the ground rules on which it operates, it's going to get worse. People's expectations are just crazy because of filters and, and all these different, you know, practically every social media outlet now has filters and we have people that are prominent celebrities that are intentionally faking their appearance so they can sell beauty products and then when their real picture gets leaked to the to the media they go crazy because they the world is seeing that oh they're not so pretty after all and all those products probably aren't worth it but they're making hundreds of millions of dollars so they they plagiarize and they and they fake their appearance for the public but that's driving the expectations in the public to a unsavory and completely unrealistic level that, you know, it's just making it much harder for us to help people in the bottom is the bottom line. Yeah, I also think a lot of people are just out
1: there to see what's the cheapest rhinoplasty they can get from who. And I think that misses the point. I mean, <laughs> it's a lifetime of exceptionally hard work. I mean, I'm only at the start of my career and I don't know how many times I've been overseas to go and visit and meetings and train and sit to learn. And so then you have like maybe 90% of the patients are so happy. It's great to get the feedback. And then you get a smaller group and then you get this really bad group. And, you know, I think you can so get so deflated with one person who just absolutely tries to character smash you. Whereas you've actually done an amazing job with so many other people's lives. But it's that little thing that just floors us.
0: It's very painful, very painful. And, uh, you know, it's almost like um, a distinction. You know, you you have done a lot of good things. I'm sure you have. Um, And if you practice this field in earnest long enough, you're gonna get one of these bruises. You'll get more than one. They will continue. But you've just gotta kind of reflect on that and decide, you know, if I quit, it doesn't help me. It doesn't help any of those patients that that want my help and need my help. So I'm not going to dignify these people with, with anything more than uh, you know just ignoring them as best you can sometimes they make it very hard, but you really kind of have to ignore them and move on okay so so let's let's just it's, move on right there um, Some other
1: misconceptions or concerns that that you have if you look back on your career that that might be um, on our horizon at the moment
0: well, I think one thing i I uh look at. Over the course of my career, there have been quantum leaps in in uh, facial plastic surgery. Um, some of these happened during my time in practice. Some uh, were kind of about the time I was entering med school or going through my residency. But and they kind of paralleled facial uh, head and neck oncology. Um, But clearly in rhinoplasty, I think, you know, Jack Sheen was one of those innovators who started thinking about middle vault contour and how to correct over resections and collapse and pinching and prolapse of the medial career. And he came up with spreader grafts. Dr. Sheen died recently and that, uh, you know, he he was an innovator and he was a true uh, passionate man about rhinoplasty and to his final uh, days in practice, he was constantly trying to up his game. So when, when spreader grafts came on, we started thinking about oh, augmentation and structural enhancement for noses that were structurally depleted with an aggressive excisional rhinoplasty, and that gave rise to the strut graft, ultimately to the septal extension graft, and I I personally think the septal extension graft is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's not perfect. It has limitations, and there's a lot of different nuances as to when it should be done this way or that way or some other way, but it is a a real advantage to have a hidden load-bearing structural support wall hidden in your collumella because your tip and middle vault can be anchored to that. And it's just it creates an extension of the L strut that gives the nose a bigger, stronger, more useful backbone than it did before. The um, so the advent of the septal extension graft then came along. Another big um, step, quantum leap was our bone work. I started using power tools back in the early 2000s, and I published on that at some point in there. I was using saws to take humps down, and everyone thought I was, you know, bat-dung-crazy. And sometimes I did, too. I'm like, well, why don't I just tap on it with with a chisel like everybody else? But the control and the glassy, smooth, tabletop contour that you got just made it phenomenal. So I used that up until a few years ago when the piezotome came to be. The piezotome is not a new instrument. It's been used in other fields, otology, neurosurgery for 25 or 30 years. It's been used in dentistry for that long. But no one had adapted it to rhinoplasty until Olivier Girbeau in Paris decided that he was going to push the issue. And he, you know, got uh, Action to create these uh, new products and I have no financial, you know, attachments to them. But the piezotome is a wonderful tool and we're now thinking about bone work in an entirely different light. We're We're doing osteoplasties, we're using precise controlled cuts, we're not splitting bone like we're hitting, splitting firewood with a sledge and a wedge we're cutting it like we have a very sharp saw that'll make a precise cut with very little bone loss. And we can do so much more with that control. Now the the exposure, because it's a heat generating instrument is, is an issue, but lately I've been doing it percutaneously and just flooding the field with ice water right at my little incision. So I use a transverse from the outside and then I do my laterals through small pockets, I will try if I don't have to do much uh, dorsal work to create symmetry to just leave the skin attached to the outer dorsum, the upper dorsum. And I haven't had any problems with scars because I've been flooding it with ice water. Um, The next big kind of leap, which is actually a, a nostalgic leap because preservation dorsal hump uh, reductions started back in the early 1900s and then it kind of got fallen out of popularity. I think some uh, South American, Central American, or Mexican doctors had used it um, even as recently as the 80s and 90s, but it kind of got forgotten and now it's kind of had a resurgence. And whereas I don't think it's a answer to every dorsal problem, it is a wonderful um, adjunct to uh, hump production when the hump is straight and when the dorsal aesthetic lines are fairly healthy. So as we go along, we find these little quantum leaps that kind of advance us, leapfrog us forward. I think our next challenge is going to be soft tissue, vascularity, and people like Dean Toriumi are trying to push that envelope. Um, unfortunately, a lot of what he's pushed has been uh, a lot more expense to a rhinoplasty. I mean, doing pre-operative and post-operative uh, hyperbaric oxygenation is not, you know, is not a trivial amount of money. Um, extra surgeries to harvest and inject fat beforehand and then afterward. Um that's going to um, limit the utility of that across the socioeconomic spectrum to people with a lot of resources and, you know, more power to them. But for those who don't, we need to find other ways to, to help them. Um, and I, I think there might be a few things on the horizon, but that remains to be seen. But the the control issues that we have with soft tissue is it going to thicken? Should I compensate by lowering the super tip a little bit or is it going to is it going to shrink? Do I need to uh compensate for a skin envelope that might thin out over time, add some soft tissue layers to thicken it? And how do I know which way it's going to go because it's not always consistent? Thin skin doesn't always thin further. And thick skin doesn't always thicken and and, and form, you know, uh, fibrosis. And so, there's got to be a way to uh, to inhibit those things. There's some things, some work being done at Stanford with uh, inhibitors that prevent scars from becoming hypertrophic. And those may be things that we can use to keep our skin flaps from from thickening, especially if we debulk them. Smash muscle from the undersurface. Uh, sky's the limit, and I think technology will bear fruit over time, um, but I think that we must never forget that vascularity is fundamental to a good outcome, that our patients need to be carefully scrutinized ahead of time for uh, well-adjusted psychology, for realistic expectations, for a good support network with family in case something does go bad. Are they out there all alone or do they have loved ones that can help them and support them through a tough time? No matter who you are, you'll eventually get a wound infection. You'll eventually get a, a complication of some, some variety or another. And, um, you know, it, it's often entirely beyond your control or prevention. They just happen. Sometimes tissues more severely compromised than than we can than we can appreciate going into a surgery, particularly if they've had multiple prior surgeries. So, if you deal in that high risk population, you, you're going to get burned. They're going to get burned at some point. But it's our job is st- to stand by them and try to work through it. And, uh, you know, if the patient's willing and they'll stick with me, I, I can usually get them where they want it to be. But I have to take it in smaller increments and not just try to climb Mount Everest in one day from base camp. You know, it doesn't work that way. So rhinoplasty is evolving, but our, tour, our tools and our resources are improving. But the milieu in which we operate is becoming more and more deranged and chaotic because of social media, because of gaming of the system, both by patients and by doctors. And I find that very objectionable and very disheartening. I have not a clue what to do about it other than to try to get all the rhinoplasty societies to band together and try to develop a unified political voice to try to present this to state houses in various countries around the world and say, hey, look, you know, you guys are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You may want everybody to have uh, freedom of speech and the right to uh, critique their doctor. That's fine. But giving them the right to to commit illegal uh, libel and slander and, and uh, to not have any sanctions against those who do is walking down a perilous path. Uh, I don't see that ending well. Um, and the, the the infrastructure in most countries bows to the powerful, like Google and others, to uh, to just kind of uh, let them run roughshod over us. And it's not just in healthcare; it happens in other sectors. But we are particularly victimized because of the Healthcare Information Portability and Accountability Act. And then the European Privacy Act is even more uh, rigorous and more uh, punitive from what I understand. It's so
1: unfortunate. This, uh, I'm kind of almost like stunned after 53 minutes of sitting and listening. Um, so I want to ask you this last question because, I mean, Rick, it's been great. Every little pearl is something that I take to heart here. Uh, I mean, the septal extension graft and the alarum grafts are probably the two grafts that have changed my practice the most. What do you love the most about rhinoplasty?
0: I love being able to take a, a sweet, outgoing, friendly patient, typically female, often between 16 and 35 years of age who has always felt self-conscious about their appearance and always been kind of socially inhibited who um really has a lot to offer the world and then suddenly by just tweaking the shape of their nose seeing somebody blossom become vibrant and vivacious and outgoing and and healthier you know sleeping at night and exercising with full vigor because they can get rest and no more of the sinus headaches and the, and the nasal gridlock when during allergy season it's it's incredibly gratifying to see how much we can impact the day to day living of people with nasal dysfunction and misshapen noses and i I had a a resident once whose wife was a pediatrician and I would give lectures to the medical students back when I worked at the university. And she came up to me one day and she said, you are just exploiting the insecurities of young women and, and you should be ashamed for doing what you do. You you victimize these vulnerable people and take their money. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, smile for me. And she smiled and I said, you've had orthodonture, haven't you? She goes, yeah, so what? And I said, well, Why did you let your parents straighten your teeth? Why didn't you leave your funky little crooked buck teeth and just go through life? How is that any different than my patient who has a big prominent hump on her nose and gets teased by her brother's friends every time they come over to the house and in gym class and everything else and who can't breathe from it? Why would you want them to labor and toil under that all their life if I can help them with a safe an effective operation that will permanently correct it. That shut her up. And she didn't say anything more after that. I mean, I can see where she might have felt that way. I mean, I don't go, people ring my doorbell. I don't attack people at the mall and say, oh, your child is ugly. You got to bring her to me. I can fix it. I let them decide if it's necessary to do that, right? I don't solicit business like that. But I also know that what you can do for some of these people. I get wedding announcements and birth announcements in the mail from patients I treated 15 and 20 years ago. They bring their own children in for me to fix their noses after, you know, 20 years. And that's gratifying to see that young parents are are coming full circle and bringing their kids in to have them fixed because A, they trust me and B, they said, you know, what you did for me was life-changing, and I don't want my son or daughter to to not ha- have the opportunity to benefit from that kind of thing. So to me, the, the the payoff is not in the pocketbook; it's in the it's it's in the heart. It's a matter of of doing what doctors are called to do, which is to make lives better and do no harm in the process. But it's incredibly gratifying. And fortunately, the majority of patients are still grateful and still appreciative. It's just that there's a lot more rotten apples in the the batch than ever before. And you really have to be very, very cautious about who you agree to operate on. And for that reason, I spend two hours in every consult. I know that's a lot of time, but to me, it pays off because, number one, I try to I've grown my practice organically. The only money I've ever spent on marketing or advertising was $3,000 on a website. That's now a website that's like 15 or 16 years out of date in terms of its longevity. I haven't done much to upgrade it. Most of the content is still valid, but I haven't added new pictures or anything because patients find me somehow. Yeah, but I mean, Rick, you've been in I, the game for I so I find that when, when I'm, Patient refers a friend or a family member or a colleague, they're generally much better quality of patients that people that, you know, Google Ads drags in off the Internet. I've never used Google Ads and I don't think I ever will because I don't want some of these people that are, you know, they come in and say, well, can you make me look like this because i doctored my picture, and now I'm going to go uh, uh, on after I met this guy on the dating site. I want you to make me look like this so I can show myself at the restaurant when we meet and look like that. I'm like, <laughs> you don't look anything like that. And fixing your nose probably isn't going to help you uh, keep that guy from walking out of the restaurant. So, you know, try to try to be honest next time on the dating site. You'll probably get better results. Well, Rick, listen. From this, from my side, um, a big thank you. But from the
1: thousands of listeners around the world, you know, you, you, your ten, twenty, thirty thousand people that you've operated on—it goes far further than that. With the work you've done around the world in publishing and giving talks at congresses and this kind of thing. And um, for those of you listening, I mean, we've just looked through a little keyhole of what uh, Dr. Davis does in Florida. I, I'd encourage you l- look up the, the all the many publications he's done, try and get to listen to his talks. Um, yeah, he 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 knows what he's doing. And the nicest thing is he's honest, eh? He's not gonna beat around the bush. So yeah, I, again, from my side, I, th- I thank you for today. Thank you for taking your Sunday afternoon off. Um, thanks to Elegant again for helping us. And if anyone has any questions, yes, please send me an email, reach out on, I have some social media channels as well. Um, It's just a different generation, I guess, of rhinoplasty where I'm starting compared to where you were 30 years ago. But it's, um, yeah, there's a lot to think about with what you've shared today.
0: Well, I think your learning curve is a lot steeper than mine um, because you have the benefit of of a lot of what you're doing here. You've helped a lot of people, Cameron, and that's not lost on me. The, um, the, The free interchange of ideas in medicine is unique. What other area of endeavor draws a crowd, brings in all their competitors, and gives all their very best secrets away for free? We have our patient's best interest at heart. You know, a banker, um, an accountant, a real estate person would probably be remiss to say, oh, here's how I get all my clients, and here's how I can do a better job than you're doing. Industry tends to be very tight-lipped, I mean look at the pharmaceutical industry and how they, you know, safe safeguard their proprietary information. We don't, and I'm proud of that. I think that's a marvelous thing and we have a lot of pure teachers doing this. I have been v- relatively silent through the whole pandemic. I've had personal issues with uh, family illnesses and oh, another uh, a number of other things that I won't uh, uh, or don't care to get into, but it's been a rough ride for me, and so I haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of um, uh, lectures online and the like. I, I look forward to the day we can all meet face to face. I still think that's the best way to to disseminate information, and I think at least in some countries the uh, vaccinations are going to make that possible in the, in the n- near future. So I look forward to uh, rubbing shoulders with you and crossing paths again in person. And uh, I think our time will come again when all of that active learning uh, happens in person. And uh, But until then, you've done a marvelous job of filling the uh, gap here. And I, I, again, I commend you. I think you've just done a wonderful thing. You're a teacher at heart, and uh, that all comes back to you, you know? It does. You learn a lot in the process, but it comes back to you with good karma. So, yeah. thank you very much. You're, you're racking up a pretty good well, I, karma
1: bank account, as it were. I do hope that um, the practice picks up again in Florida.
0: So, ladies and gents, um, we'll hear you all again next. It's year. picking up. It's just that I have a lot of other distractions that are that are making it hard to do things right now. But we're we're hanging in there. I've actually been fairly busy in the OR. I just I just have other uh, issues, you know. I lost my mother not too long ago. I've got a ninety-some-year-old dad that I'm trying to um, get out of a nursing home because it's since COVID, it's been almost a horrible place to have a senior. And I'm trying to prepare my house for, you know, handicapped accessibility and everything to get him back in here. So I got lots of little pokers in the fire that have distracted me, but um, the the world keeps turning and will prevail. It's uh, It's been a crazy time, but you know, hopefully we'll learn from it and uh, come out wiser and stronger at the other end. I always like the saying, it's- it So I suspect you're past your bedtime now, you probably have to get on an airplane in the morning <laughs> and fly somewhere to do I've a case. I've got six so. more weeks
1: of getting, getting on an airplane, and then I've got my own operating center. So, can't wait for Yay. that, I can't wait for well,
0: that.
1: Okay, well yeah, guys, we'll listen be, to you all uh, again next week. Thank you again for for listening and uh, thanks for being on the podcast.